On September 24th, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft will complete its sample return mission, delivering its goods to planet Earth from the asteroid named Bennu. So today we're going to talk to the person who named Bennu and find out more about the mission and why it's important. What has been your favorite space probe? Let us know your thoughts via our social media pages at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram, threads, and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website. And please consider joining us over at patreon.com Space and Things. But right now, enjoy episode 160 of the Space and Things Podcast. Listening to the Space and Things Podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. All right, I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 160 of the Space and Things Podcast. I'm in Ireland this week to celebrate the wedding of some good friends of mine. So we recorded this show a couple of weeks back. So we won't have a what's caught my eye in space flight section this week, but we have lots to talk about, including there's an event coming up, which Emily's going to, which I think she wants to talk about. So let's hear about that first. Yes, on the evening, I believe it's September 29th on Friday, there's an event called That 70s Show Skylab uh, at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville. I believe it's at the Davidson Saturn V Center, which, if you've been there, has the big Saturn V lying on its side in the building, glass, the kind of the glass-covered building. It's really pretty. Uh, basically, uh, that night, it's going to be a three-hour event. There'll be sort of a cocktail party, followed by a dinner, followed by sort of a little soiree there. Um, David Hitt, one of our uh, previous guests, I think he's been on the show oh, several we times. David. Yeah, We love David. He will be the MC that night. There will nice. be some legendary Skylab guests that night as well that David will be interviewing. And um, also, this is going to be fun. Uh, people are encouraged to wear their best 70s flavored clothes to this event. And I've already got my outfit. I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, I'm going for a little vintage 70s glamour but um it'll be really exciting so the ticket price is 70 dollars, which i honestly don't think is that bad at all considering it's a three-hour oh, event yeah. all the funds go to the space and rocket center which is a marvelous cool. place i've been there several times and i just love it i love it more every time i go there so yeah if you're interested come check it out september 29th on friday come visit and i will be there as well if you want to come by and say hi amazing Okay, so as I said earlier, we do have a lot to talk about today, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, the OSIRIS-REx mission led by NASA aimed to study and collect samples from the near-Earth asteroid called Bennu. It was launched on September 8, 2016 on an Atlas V rocket. It reached Bennu in 2018 and spent two years studying the asteroid surface and composition. In October 2020, it successfully collected a sample of the regolith from the surface, and you may remember us talking about this when it happened way back on episode 8. Eight. That was a while back. The <laughs> spacecraft has been traveling, has since been traveling back towards Earth and will deliver the sample return capsule on Sunday, September 24th. The spacecraft will then carry on its mission, heading out to another near-Earth asteroid called Apophis. Uh, which it should reach by 2029, so it has an extended mission. 
I like that. Okay, so for those of you who are wondering, a near-Earth asteroid is one that has an orbit that brings it into proximity with Earth's orbit. So studying them is probably a pretty good idea. I think so anyway. Uh, so to talk about this mission, we're joined by Dr. Larry Puzio and his son, Michael. So they're both trained as OSIRIS-REx ambassadors and have a unique connection to this mission. Michael is the person that named the asteroid Bennu. So plenty to talk about. Let's start this interview. Every single place in the observable universe is either space or a thing. So this podcast is really about everything. Okay. All right. So welcome, Larry and Michael, and thank you for joining us on Space and Things. So let's start with Larry. Uh, tell us about your background and what inspired your work as a NASA Solar System Ambassador. Uh, has spaceflight always been a part of your life? Well, it really has. I've been a science nerd forever. I'm a pediatrician now. But in the last decade, I've really gotten back into space, encouraging my son to read and learn about science and eventually space exploration. Awesome. So, Michael, you named the asteroid Bennu in 2012, and the story behind why the asteroid was named that is brilliant. So tell us the story behind that. Okay, well, uh starts off with me in 2012, it was November, and uh, I'm playing on my DS, and my dad asks me to come over here, uh, and he's sitting on the, he's sitting in like, uh, he's sitting in one of the chairs, and he's pilled up collect space, and there's this competition for kids to name uh, an asteroid and the mission to that asteroid was already announced name-wise uh, to be Osiris-Rex. So then we look up Osiris and it turns out it's an ancient Egyptian deity, the ruler of the outer world. And so what we did was we just read the Wikipedia article about him and the name Bennu stood out, Bennu being how Osiris returned to Earth. And so we thought Benny would be fitting. Wow. I didn't I didn't know that. How how old were you at the time? Oh dear, I was eight. Good. Amazing. I, I was into space when I was eight, but I was not that smart. So we'll we'll just put it that way. That is that is incredible. That's really cool. So can we just go back to the, the competition? What was it was a competition on collect space or, or was this uh who who was running this this competition? Okay, so there's this little organization called the Planetary Society. I don't know if you heard about it. It's a great thing. Uh, lobbying Congress for more money towards NASA. Um, but it was hosting this competition and somebody had posted uh, the link on CollectSpace. Uh, and my dad had just been getting into this stuff. So he, it was the first thing he clicked on. So the OSIRIS-REx mission has been full of first. Uh, but you know, the sample return is probably the most astonishing. You know, when in late 2020, just as we were beginning this podcast, the spacecraft touched Bennu's surface and collected a good sample. Uh, the sample capsule will return to Earth. What things must be practiced before the capsule touches down is, and is collected, you know? And are, have any of their sample return missions come back to Earth in maybe a similar manner? Uh, well, I know about the Stardust mission happening in, I believe it was 2007, where it touched down uh, in a similar fashion. But the area is going to be pretty much like blocked off uh, with a good radius around it, such that the public doesn't go in there and accidentally mess the sample or take some because 
this is what an $80 million mission. So it's about a million dollars a gram. And I hate to break it to you, but I'm not getting my hands on that either. So, <laughs> so it's just like walking it off and then making sure that um, people like just grab the capsule itself and just deliver it to the right place. Oh, actually, the return will be at the Utah Test and Training Range. Mission has been very thorough on practicing recovery. They even have a SIMSUP drill with contingencies and errors. Uh, they spent a lot of effort on it. And their practice runs in July in the Utah desert. Went well. It's actually an $800 million project, the NASA New Frontiers work. So it's even more per gram, but really worth it. My bad. <laughs> Another remarkable fact about OSIRIS-REx is that this mission is far from over and it's going to survey another asteroid. So tell us about that and more about the spacecraft's extended mission. Okay. So as far as I know with the extended mission, it's going to search other nearby asteroids uh, and use the instruments that it already has on there that it used to study Bennu to study them. So the next target, I believe, is called Apophis, uh, named after the snake that's uh, supposedly fighting Ra at the end of the day uh, when his sunship has come around the earth. <laughs> oh, wow. I, I didn't realize I'd need an Egyptian history lesson before this, but this is great. <laughs> Back when he did the contest, Mike was big on reading Egyptian and Greek mythology, so it's still an interest of his. We've had a question from one of our Patreon subscribers, John Wizzo has sent us this. He said, some describe the asteroid belt as a lot of untapped potential, and we see several asteroid mining companies trying to get going. Do you think these early asteroid missions will lead to something big? Uh, almost certainly, because of how much potential, as you said, was there. The Meyer planet Vesta, I believe, has like a few quadrillion dollars worth of metal, if I'm not mistaken. Wow. Uh, so bringing that all back to Earth, would be a huge boon for any company that decided to actually go on that venture. I, I was having this conversation with uh, with my my partner at the weekend about bringing metals back, precious metals and and things back to earth. Does that devalue our own metals and and stones? And and will in the future perhaps this is this is a question that perhaps none of us can ask. But will in the future there be people paying a premium for earth based metals? Uh, or will the premium be for asteroid-based metals? I, I wonder how the markets will deal with this kind of stuff. Or will it just be, okay, that's just iron, uh, for example. Um, I, it's something that, that uh, we, we were both thinking about. It's, it's quite a unknown territory we're about to head into, right? Unknown but exciting. There's a huge market yeah. for industrial quantities of rare earth metals, for EVs, batteries, rechargeables. And it's much cleaner to get them in space than to tear up um, earth mines for them. Arguably, there are people that uh, will actually steal and salvage World War II battleships because none of the steel there is contaminated with radioactivity in the 60s atomic testing. So there's a market for, quote, clean iron. So there'll always be a market for stuff that we can get access to. That's incredible. I didn't think about that because of the atomic testing in the 50s and 60s that could probably contaminate a lot of stuff. I did not think about that. That's wow. Okay. Yeah, lab laboratories need green iron for radiation research. But going back to mining asteroids, there's so much potential there. We don't even know what could become of the resources we grab. They'd be virtually unlimited. And there's a 
the work of Gerard K. O'Neill comes to mind. We certainly have to build out his ideas. Yeah, I was about, I was, I was on the verge. Dave probably saw me. I was on the verge <laughs> of bringing that up because I was like, he, t- he talked a lot about, um, in the High Frontier and other works, he talked a lot about using space material to make, you know, space infrastructure and things like that. So that's obviously another avenue that we can use with like, you know, asteroids and other, other bodies. So, all right. So it may be too early to answer this question, but what do you think Osiris Rex's, and I think the next one is Osiris Apex's uh, legacy will be decades from now when the mission has long come to a close? Well, I guess we could start with the fact that uh, it's one of the earlier, I guess, in our uh, exploration of the cosmos, one of our earlier uh, tests to try and find where the origin of life is, uh, given that Bennu was selected out of tens of thousands of asteroids, uh, out of a whole series of lists, but one of them being that it was carbon-rich. And, well, carbon is what we're based on. So we were trying to find life by exploring Bennu. That opens up a hell of a lot of avenues, doesn't it? I I didn't realize that that was why it was chosen, actually. Definitely part of the O from Origins is where did life come from? Where did the resources that led to the development of life? And those are untouched and pristine in the asteroid belt. And the other legacy is that we're really learning how to track an asteroid because Bennu is one of the two most dangerous known asteroids out there for an Earth-intersecting orbit. Oh, I didn't know that. There's a scale whose name eludes me, but it's ranked up. It's tied for first place. September 24th, 2183, there'll be a close flyby. With the one out of 27 chances hitting us. Okay. That's a little too close. Those chances are... (laughs) Even though we won't be around by then, I mean, those chances are, yeah, a little too close. I have uh, a question, actually, and and you touched a little bit on this, and I hope it makes sense. Uh, Do you... And I'd like your opinion on uh, from both. A lot of solar system missions, whether it be to planets or asteroids or whatever, you know, bodies or moons or whatever, I find that a lot of them, you know, they do explore other bodies in the solar system, obviously. But a lot of the missions, part of the objective is to find out more about how uh, we formed, how we all came to be. What do you guys have to say about that? Do you guys agree with that? Or do you guys think, you know, oh, they're just exploring other bodies? I think any kind of exploration is good. The the return on investment for money spent in space is amazing. And by finding, finding out where we came from, that really could impact our society. And would also help us understand if there are other chances of life in the universe and where it could come from. So the sky's the limit on that. Um, I, I want to just drop back into something you said earlier because it's something I don't know anything about. Michael, you mentioned earlier that there was something called the Stardust Mission that I I don't know anything about. Can, can I review, give us some more details on what that was? Uh, I'm a little hazy on uh, the mission itself, but it's uh, it was a sample return mission and uh, the idea was to bring back a piece of what was it also an asteroid? Um, I mean uh, comet. Okay, sorry. Uh, a piece of a comet, and it did not go successfully, if I can remember correctly. I think the um, for Stardust, I, I know a little bit about it. I think the sample return came back the uh, damaged, so only some of the sample was like viable. Basically, I think it came back. Uh, 
I, th- I could be wrong. I want to say they had an issue when it came back. Yeah, I vaguely recall a tiny glitch with one of the sensors for the parachute was installed upside down, so it didn't deploy properly. And despite that, they were able to salvage some data and some some good science with it. Hayabusa 2 has been more recent and very successful. Yeah, I was just about to mention that. That's the one that I could remember off the top of my head. The two teams collaborated, which again is great for the theme of multinational space participation, but they're sharing some of the sample return from each side. JAXA had a deal with the OSIRIS-REx team, also sharing some with Canada because the Canadian Space Agency provided the LIDAR. So there's a lot of collaboration with this project. So obviously Michael said that he's not getting any of the asteroid, which I think is a real shame, but in mind he named it. Um, It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem right to me. But have you been able to participate in any way in being at or around any of the events uh, associated with OSIRIS-REx? Well, it's great that I have. Uh, I was in the seventh grade, just going in new school, and my family and I uh, decided to go down to Florida around the time of the launch. We were hoping maybe we could get like a small glimpse from around uh, Orlando of the watching the rocket go up. And my dad was in email cahoots with this man named Richard Chute. And so he is a member of the Planetary Society higher up. He emailed my dad asking uh, if he had like a group of like four or five people uh, that I would want to go see the launch with. And so I just brought my family and or my immediate family and my aunt uh, for the really close up one. But while we were there, turns out Bill Nye was there too. Oh, wow. And he had wanted to meet me <laughs> and the family after the whole naming scheme had gone. And so we're at Kennedy Space Center. We just had lunch and Bill Nye was giving a big talk. And uh, as we go out there, uh, Bill Nye then announces me to the crowd, says, uh, Mike Fusio, come on up. And my mind is blown. I did not even think that he knew anything about us being there or anything along those lines. But it was an amazing day. We got to see a little bit of behind the scenes of Kennedy Space Center with Bill. Uh, and I mean, meeting one of my personal heroes is pretty big. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, from there, we went to the launch pad uh, of, or near the launch pad of Osiris Rex. We went to the VAB and then we went to. Uh, the VIP launch uh, station. And so we watched the launch with Bill Nye, Charlie Bolden, the then, or sorry, Major General Charlie Bolden, the then head of NASA, uh, along with the head of JAXA and the head of the Peace Corps and a bunch of other people. That's awesome. And all because all you entered a competition. And uh, I just love that. I love that. So um, are you also members of the Planetary Society then? Or yep, yeah, I assume so. Yeah, I became a member a couple of years back. It really is great what they do. Um, what what would you say to people who are thinking about being getting involved with something like this? Space is just amazing, and as my father said, there's a huge return on investment. It's between seven and eight dollars for every dollar put in of for of research. So any support for space is well worth it, no matter what argument you can try to up against it. 
Where, where do those stats come from? I, I'm always curious. So I'm going to put you on the spot there. Like uh, uh, hearing that is is wonderful. That that so seven dollars is the return. Seven to eight dollars for every one dollar spent on space. So, uh, I believe NASA came up with that. Although oddly enough, they have a vested interest yeah. in getting that money. <laughs> Slightly less biased viewpoint, uh, the National Space Society estimates that the Apollo program returned seven to eight dollars. Some of the current research suggests up to thirty to forty dollars return on every dollar put in, which is one of the reasons India is moving into that market. There, it really benefits their society. Um, their success obviously helps, but they're they're up and comers for competition for earning money by launching. So there's good reason to spend money on space. Going back to the Planetary Society, um, they have a great program. They also have a, a Planetary Academy for kids, like for age nine, five to nine, which is when mm-hmm. you really get hooked on space, like me and him. Um, so there's a lot of good programs out there. And then there's so much outreach through JPL um, that a lot of schools are involved in it. And, and Michael, what is next for you? You're, you're at that great age where the world is your oyster, but what, what is next for someone who's already named an asteroid? Uh, I guess you could try and say going to conquer the entire solar system. Uh, no, <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, at some point uh, last or two years ago, uh, I was alerted by our great friend who also works uh, with the OSIRIS-REx mission, Dolores Hill, uh, that they, that she and had worked with the International Astronomical Union to name an asteroid after me. Uh, so oh, wow. the next step, I guess, would be that, and also one for my father. What? <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's mental. Uh, yeah. So then after that, I guess, is trying to use this to get to know more people and advance the idea of g- getting people involved with space. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, w- when will we know that the sample return has been a success? Uh, what, what, are we, what are we expecting to happen over the, over the next couple of weeks in terms of um, timeline of when we might start seeing results of what we've got? Well, I imagine there'll be a big press release about it, uh, given that it's one of NASA's uh, events. I, I know that the Postal Service is releasing a stamp for it, Oh, wow. Uh, that I hope to be there for. They're launching it in Utah, so my dad and I are going to try and get in a little bit on that. But yeah, more importantly, uh, NASA TV will have a live coverage starting 8 a.m. Mountain Standard Time uh, for the landing. And we'll know by about 8.24, there's a 13-minute procedure from atmospheric reentry to landing. So it's like the seven minutes of terror with perseverance. It's the 13 minutes of waiting for a good landing and hoping it's in the right place. So we'll find out with live coverage. It's one of the, the, the aspects of this mission that is blowing my mind perhaps the most is not only do you send something that far away to high-five an asteroid, essentially, but then you bring it back and you land it in the, in the patch of ground that you want to land it in, travelling at the speeds that it was travelling at. When it's travelled those distances, it it's like throwing an, a needle from one haystack to another haystack and hitting in the precise bit of hay, probably probably smaller of a target than that from from a hundred meters away. It's it's quite something, isn't it? This just the maths and the 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 engineering behind that alone. Forget that we were actually returning a sample, but just going there and coming back. 
and being that precise is really something. Over the years, I've been amazed at how big the project is and how many people are involved with, there's so many specialties and hard workers you never hear about. It's been an amazing project. It's given us a lot of opportunities to learn and really impacted Mike's life just by having so much exposure to science and mm. how things happen. But I've been very fortunate that we even got involved with it. And there's so many people we can, wouldn't have time to thank. Well, thank you both for joining us today. Um, thank you. This is a mission that, that means quite a lot to Emily and I because it was so early in our starting the podcast that this happened. It was one of the first major events that happened after we started this podcast. So it, it feels like it's uh, it, it it's a nice, I don't know, full circle for us as well, Emily, that, yes. that all these years later we're, we're seeing the end result of something that we saw happen right at the start and we're so excited about. Um, so thank you for sharing your, your, your thoughts with us. And uh, I'm just glad I've spoken to someone who's named an asteroid. And it's going to have an asteroid named after them as well. I mean, that's that's mental. Anyway, uh, Emily, we can dream. We can dream. Yes, yes, we can dream. <laughs> that's awesome. You, you can be called, yeah, we, we'll have three asteroids. One can be called space, one and the one things. And, uh, and then ah. we'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, they have to be next to each other. They have to be pretty close. I want to think it's interesting, the... Uh... I have to tie this in. The asteroid named after Mike was announced the same time they named an asteroid after Ed Gibson, the guy from Skylab. Oh, Skylab. <laughs> Boop. Yep. Well, well, done. Awesome. well done. Well done, Larry. I'm proud of you. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Somehow yes. we managed to get a reference to Skylab We'd... whilst talking about the asteroid Bennu. Amazing. While talking about Osiris Rex, yeah. which is like... <laughs> <laughs> totally different. Brilliant. Yeah, totally Brilliant. different. That's awesome. Amazing. That's one small step for... Oh my... What is that thing? <laughs> okay, so as we as we said there, I really do feel this is kind of a full circle thing for you and I, Emily. I feel like this marks something for us and this podcast, this return uh, mission, um, which is happening... It should be, as we said earlier, it should be around uh, Sunday, the, the 24th of September. This should be making its way back to planet Earth. So hopefully, if you've listened to this before that, you'll make it, uh, make some time to to look out for any of the live streams that are going on and watch that. I'm sure NASA have got some cool things planned for this. Oh, yeah. Uh, Press-wise and media-wise, because it is a big deal for them. and. Uh, Larry told us afterwards that at Johnson Space Center they've built a whole new sample return center just to get these samples back which will be next door to where the Apollo moon rocks are which is pretty cool so there's, a, there's also that that legacy there as well, well isn't there which is, is nice yeah it's it's really cool that they're doing something like that and it's just I just these kinds of missions are just incredible like this to me is just mind blowing that they're even able to do something like this. You know, I think you mentioned during the interview and it's a really good metaphor is throwing a needle from one haystack to another and trying to get a, like a specific spot in that haystack. Like, okay, we're going to put it in this area and recover that needle. You know, I mean, seriously, it is like that. And I think we sort of take for granted how easy NASA, you know, NASA engineers and scientists make that look. It's not easy. They make it, well, you know, they make it look easy, sort of how, like, uh, Simone Biles makes gymnastics look easy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, like, in a, you know, somebody elite at the top of their field, they, they make stuff look easy because they've been doing it forever and they've 
they've put a lot of research and thought into it. I totally agree with you. This is really a full circle experience for us. You know, I remember when it obtained the sample, you know, almost got three years ago and, you know, how excited we were over that because, I mean, the the visuals that came from that were just like, oh my God. I was just about to say that, yeah. I don't want to feed the conspiracy idiots, but really, I mean, it was like something from like science fiction, you'd imagine, you know, like, oh my God, we we literally did a high five with a, a freaking asteroid, like something that is moving. I rewatched the footage recently just to get myself excited about the sample return thing. And I'll put it in the show notes because it is worth watching. And I, I think if I got this right, I'm, my memory may be wrong on this. I think you and I made sure we both watched it and we recorded sh- as soon as as soon yeah. as the, the broadcast was over. That's my memory of it. I'll be disappointed if that's wrong. Anyway, we were both so excited. It was yeah. so crazy what you were watching and i know it wasn't the first time that this has happened i know that uh, obviously the the japanese had uh, hayabasu 2 i never know if i've pronounced that wrong but that's this podcast and never never mind <laughs> i know i know it's not the first time but it was the first time i'd watch something like that live and we were watching it in real time well obviously the delay in the comms but we were watching it pretty much in real time and seeing this tiny spacecraft that had come from or the view from this tiny spacecraft which had come from a however many million miles away, slow up to the point where it can just touch the surface and come back. And, and you know, we we got excited about the DART mission a, a little while back as well, which was obviously a complete different process of, okay, we're not yes. going to get up and slow down. We're going to just smash into it, which is obviously a complete different set of skills. But the, the idea of slowing down, like actually... And of course, you've got to send the commands to do that stuff with the delay time and all this. Like the, the process behind making this happen is is so like the, to be that precise at that distance and not have. There's a point where you have to push a button and send a command, and you know that you what you've got no idea if it's going to work or not. Yeah. Other than. The, the models and the uh, the practice things you've done on a, in a computer seem to suggest that it should be fine, and for for then for it to happen in real life, I mean, it's just crazy. It's just crazy, and I love that we're doing it. I love that it sets up, and as we talked about with with Mike and Larry, it sets up this future where we could start mining asteroids and potentially sorry to sound a bit tweet, but potentially try and save the earth by doing this, by, you know, taking industry off the planet. Yeah. Being able to protect and preserve our own planet by using resources that are just going around the asteroid belt. Now, of course, there can be moral, we can have moral debates about that, but I, in my personal opinion, I'd rather take them from the asteroid belt where we're pretty certain there's no life. I mean, there's almost n- certainly no life. There's no atmospheres on these asteroids, so we're yeah. pretty safely... To, to say that there's no life on these things, who knows? Maybe some tardigrades. But uh, <laughs> let, let, let's let's go and get those raw materials. Let's use them. Let, let's do that instead of wrecking this planet anymore. Like, uh, and this marks not the start because it's been done before, but th- this really is another step on that stone. And and you you talked about legacy, and I really think that is a huge part of the legacy of this. That. You know, in in twenty years, and when we've spoken to some of these uh, companies um, that are talking about doing these things, uh, I think it was Transastra. You know, Joel Sersel 
we spoke to him and he's saying yeah, in the next next few years we're gonna, they're thinking about yeah. trying to make this happen that's huge that's huge and it's from seeing things like we saw in t- in 2020 where you saw this thing take a sample you can see how it's going to happen and that's on a government budget. Forget private industry getting involved with, with all that extra million yeah. dollars they're going to have from selling these selling these sample returns. It's, it, it, just the mind boggles at where we're going with this. Exactly. Yeah. And I I also think it's you know fascinating how and I, we brought this up a little bit during the interview how exploring these uh you know these bodies and other in and not just asteroids you know planets moons comets etc etc stars the sun to me it's really cool how studying these bodies i mean obviously we're studying other worlds that are very different from us but i think they all have something to tell us about where we're where we're from and and sort of our origins you know because that's something we're I, we're still sort of searching you know about I, I think it's sort of a natural human instinct you know i think it's why these dna websites so are so big huh that's a really good point. Because people want to learn more about themselves, you know, and they want to figure out, okay, where am I from? You know, what are my roots? Because, hmm. you know, not everybody, unfortunately, was told the truth by their parents, you know, and I think that's why that's so popular is people really want to know, you know, okay, where am I from? Who am I? I think these missions are sort of a, on a bigger scale, sort of a, a solar way to figure out, okay, what are our origins and where did we come from? How did our planet form, you know, and how did how did life come to exist as we know it on the planets, you know, as far as like, okay, how did oceans and how did all this, these ecosystems that we see, how did, how do we make that, you know, or how did something make that? I think these missions are just more than just pretty pictures and okay, we're going to go study this world or this world or this world, you know, we're finding out about those worlds, but we're also in turn finding out about ourselves and who we are as a, as a humanity, I guess, if that makes sense. I wonder how much these missions are inspired by the early years of spaceflight in that regard. Yeah. And and again, I'll bring up the Apollo program because obviously it's the area I've probably got most expertise, but you know, was it Bill Anders who said we went to the we, we went to the moon to to learn about the moon, but the greatest thing we learned was we discovered Earth. You know, that that that's the quote, isn't it? And and I wonder how how that quote or that that realization, whilst we were doing those early missions, made planetary science become about discovery of Earth, if that makes yeah. sense, and discovery of us and and our origins, rather than just solely looking out and being inspired by what's there, yeah, uh, or being or, or trying to learn about what's there, but trying to learn about us. I Maybe it was always going to be, maybe you're right, maybe it was always going to be about looking at us, but I wonder if it was directly inspired by that those early missions. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of looking outward, but also looking inward at the same time. And I still feel as far as like planetary science missions are concerned, they're still, or planetary or just other world uh, exploration, I guess. And I include like asteroids and comets and stuff like that. I feel like we're still very much in the beginning phases of them. I mean, there's, if you look at a planet like Venus, for example, that hasn't been studied a lot, mainly because Venus is not a welcoming place. But if you look at certain things, you know, we haven't studied a lot of asteroids. We haven't studied a lot of comets because they're not easy to get to. I still feel like we're sort of in the embryonic stages of figuring that out. And 
I'm really excited to see what happens with the future. And obviously, I'm real excited to find out what Osiris Rex brings back and what it studies in the future. I think it's really cool that it's still going to be ongoing. Yeah. And 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 what, one other thing for me would be, it, it's great that they mentioned, uh, that Michael and Larry mentioned the Planetary Society, which do yes. such a huge amount of work in... in uh, advocating for missions like this and and trying to push push to get this kind of planetary science mission going, and obviously we've spoken recently about the ongoing budget issues that within NASA of NASA losing funding that they're going to take from this kind of mission. Well, I hope that the excitement around this sample return and if it goes well, just makes people realise why it's important and, and and perhaps pushes people towards the idea of. We've got to keep doing these things. We can't keep delaying it. Because you're right, we we haven't done enough. And we've got some incredible technology now. It's so much easier. Like, How, how can it be that that some, some of the places in our home solar system have only been explored by technology which is over 50 years yeah. old? How can that be? Not, not to take away from those missions, they were amazing. But you think about what we could do now. And yes, I appreciate there's an expense there. But as Michael Larry pointed out, that investment gets returned to us. Um, I'd love to know more details about it, and we've spoken we're going to get that, but it's got to be worth it. It's got to be something that we strive to do. And when, when obviously, you and I are both fascinated by human spaceflight, but we're also fascinated by this robotic kind of missions, these uh, uncrewed missions which explore and do just purely science things, and they're the gateway for human exploration. There's a gateway for so many things. Exactly, And, yeah. and you need both elements. You need uh, you speak to a lot of the, the moon guys, the lunar guys, and they all say that, you know, we could do with both. We don't just need humans on the moon. We need some robots on the moon as well. You need a bit of both. And you could ex- say the same for anywhere else. You know, you have the, the human's perspective, but there's so much that robots can do as well, which humans can't do or just would be a waste of money sending humans to do. So so let's do both and, and, and send exploratory things with robots and then find out and send humans afterwards, so on and so forth. So it is, it's more than just doing it to bring back a rock. It's, it's so important that that these things happen and uh yeah i'm I'm pleased we're getting to the to this point and osiris rex is coming home and and i hope it's successful on sunday and and yeah i hope this this time next week in the podcast we're talking about uh how cool it was i'm sure we will be i'm sure we will be but obviously nothing's certain in space flight i'm hoping that it'll come back under some good parachutes and that we'll get a good view of it coming back i mean that would be really freaking awesome i'm like oh my god that's I came back from like a freaking asteroid. Like that's... Yeah. So as always, anything we've talked about will be in the show notes, some some links to uh, to the Planetary Society and and, uh, Larry and... uh, Mike's social medias and so on and so forth. So check out the show notes and the unedited, full unedited interview will be up on our Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash space and things. You're listening to Space and Stuff. What was that? Oh, sorry. Space and Things. You're listening to Space and Things. Thanks for joining us this week. As we said at the start, there won't be any What's Caught Our Eye in Spaceflight this week, but we will be back next week with a bigger edition of What Caught Our Eye. So thanks for your continued support of what we're doing. We really do appreciate you listening, and please consider sharing what we do with your friends. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you mean. This has been the Space and Things Podcast with new episodes every Thursday.